This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we listen to the second major discourse given by Jesus as he sends out his disciples on a mission to bring the kingdom. Yes. We're going to keep powering through Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 10. We're going to do all of Matthew chapter 10 today. We're going to jump in here at the top of our podcast and immediately talk about a show note. Um, a group of fine human beings doing a very similar work to what we do here with the BMA podcast, the Bible Project, BibleProject.com. They've got a podcast that uh, is more well-known than ours, and it probably should be, to be honest. But we are cut from the same cloth. I love those guys. We have a lot of people on Twitter that have, well, not a lot of people. We have a handful of people that have name-dropped us together and talked about the day that we shall meet the BMA people and the Bible Project people. That'd be a good day. Tim Mackey's stuff is fantastic. Like the material that they put together is really great. And they got a lot more people. Their outfit is a little bit bigger than ours that they're uh, that they're running over there, Brent. There and when you say over there, you mean Portland, Oregon. Yeah, right? I don't like to mention that place, but yeah. <laughs> yeah would, would you be willing to go to Portland to meet with them? Well, I mean Jonah had to go to Nineveh, so there you go. All right. <laughs> Ah, I love those guys though. They do good work. I love their videos. Uh, they, I, they're just in the same line of work as we are, trying to get people to understand the context of the scriptures. Their stuff is often maybe not as heavily Jewish, coming from a Jewish perspective as ours is, uh, but very much about the context of the scriptures and the literary devices that are in the scriptures, and just super, super good. I, I don't know if I've ever, well, I, I'll hear stuff every now and then that I'm like, oh, I don't really like that nuance, or I wouldn't say it that way, but I, their material is just so good all the time. So one of the things that they actually brought to my attention, and I wasn't aware until I started looking at some of their resources and realized uh, I just hadn't bumped into this yet about the theories that lie behind Matthew, is um, uh, they they bring up on their, if you have their poster, we're going to link their poster for the book of Matthew. If you're not familiar with what they do, you ought to check it out. They do like every Bible book. They talk about it. They'll do a video or two or three about... Yeah, so um, we're, we're linking two things here. So yeah. the first link is to the general page on Matthew. There's a couple of videos there. Uh, The first video covers chapters 1 through 13, so that's going to be the relevant portion for today. And then we'll also link to the poster, which is like a a graphical representation of the entire book of Matthew. Correct. And uh, I just love everything on that page. I have a couple blog posts at the bottom um, about Matthew that just really backs up some of the things that we were talking about in previous podcasts, too. So I just really like it. You won't find the Mumser theme that I love so much, the outcast theme. You won't find that in their material. But so much of what they're doing is just right alongside of what we're teaching there. But one of the things that you bump into there, and the reason we're going to link the poster and the visual, is because they talk about... um, I mean, one of the themes in Matthew, and we we mentioned this in passing at one point, was that Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the new Moses. You're looking for this new Moses character. The book of Deuteronomy talked about, I will send one like Moses. Um, and so the Jewish people were looking for a second Moses. God had promised a second Moses. So where is the second Moses? And one of Matthew's great themes is trying to show Jesus as somebody coming up out of Egypt, being in the desert for 40 days where Moses was for 40 years and drawing all these Moshe parallels. Well, one of the things about that that they point out in in Matthew is Matthew has kind of brackets. It has an introduction and an outro, an intro and an outro. And between these two brackets, you have five major chunks of Matthew. Each chunk of Matthew ends with a major discourse by Jesus. And those five, when I say that there are five discourses, 
and I'm drawing Moses parallels, what do you think of, Brent? Well, the books of Moses. The books of Moses. And so there are these absolute parallels. Now, I wish there was even more parallels to, and I don't think the Bible Project guys are actually um, insinuating this uh, as far as like direct parallels. So section one is Genesis and section two is Exodus. I have wanted to draw more parallels. If Matthew is doing that deliberately, I want to draw more parallels and just, well, there's five sections and there's five books of Moses. If I've been a, if I feel good about any idea I've been able to come up with as I look at this theory, it's that they're going backwards. If there is a parallel, it's that it's going Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, and Genesis. And the reason I might like that is it might be Matthew's way of saying we're headed back to the garden. We're starting a new creation. We are we're restoring things back to the way that they ought to be. The kingdom of God is. I, I'm not sure if if that's the case. But that's one of the only theories that I've really loved. But there are definitely these five discourses. So the first chunk of Matthew ends up being Matthew 4 through 7. So usually what happens is you'll have some stories in Matthew followed by a very large discourse, book number one. And then you'll have some stories in Matthew followed by a very large discourse, book number two. And then some stories followed by a discourse. So the first section of Matthew is going to be Matthew 4 through 7. And what was the long discourse, Brent? The Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount three chapters worth of discourse. Um, and then you have some more, immediately following chapter seven, we had some stories. We had chapters uh, eight and nine telling stories. And then now we have chapter 10, which is a long discourse. And after chapter 10, we're going to have some stories followed by Matthew 13, which is going to be all those parables told by Jesus, followed by some stories. And then all of a sudden a discourse followed by stories and then the final discourse. So I'm totally sold on the theory. I want to keep studying it and draw even more parallels and become even more familiar with it. But what I've looked into and some of the scholarly research I've seen of guys that are putting forth that theory, I like it. I'm totally sold. I think it's absolutely there. Five chunks, five books of Moses. I'm digging it. Um, so we get to this section, and in your intro, your intro comment, your introduction to the episode, you said the second discourse. What did I mean by that? I mean of all of these large discourses we just finished up, you could say book number two of Matthew. We've just been told some stories, and now we're going to get uh, a discourse. So if Sermon on the Mount was discourse number one, they went out from there, they started living out Sermon on the Mount, and now Jesus is sending out his disciples with discourse number two. So I want to get into this. Um, and after I spent all of last episode talking about how every time Jesus opens his mouth, it's in the text, um, this is going to be a struggle for me because I want to talk about the discourse as a whole. Um, and there are so many potential textual references happening in this discourse. I'm not going to be able to hit them all. I'm going to hit some of the obvious ones that show up in your text, um, but we won't be able to dig into it like I kind of wish we could. Part of that is my familiarity. I'm much more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. I've spent so much more time in that and read so many more resources on the Sermon on the Mount than I have in Matthew 10. But part of it is I don't want to get us lost in the weeds and miss the big picture of what Jesus is doing in this discourse, because this discourse is going to definitely have a theme about it. And I want to make sure we catch that theme. Um, as I prepared for today, uh, this, this passage is really good for my soul. So that could mean one of two things, a good thing or a bad thing. Either it's going to be like awesome as it comes out of my own heart as I've processed it today, or it may come out as a mess because it's gone through my heart. <laughs> Not my head. So we'll see how this goes. But such a, uh, just such an affirming passage uh, for me. I I'm hoping maybe for some of our listeners too. Maybe they find themselves in similar places. But 
With no further ado, Mr. Billings. Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness, which incidentally is what he had just been doing all throughout the Galilee. Exactly. So they've just watched. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. Now the rabbi goes out to live the Sermon on the Mount, and they've been watching. And now they have to be given authority because you as as a Talmud, one of the Talmudim, the disciples... You don't get to just go out and do whatever you want. Like the rabbi has to sit. So now Jesus is like, okay, you watched me. Now I want you to go do this. Not that he's saying, you've got all the tools. You're going to nail it. I want you to go on a little field trip here. I want you to go experiment with this. You've been watching me do it. Now I want you to go do it. And he goes to send them out. Okay. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter and his brother, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee and his brother, John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Right, it's great. Uh, And I wonder sometimes why Matthew puts this list right here. Because I wonder, and we've talked about this already, I believe, in an earlier podcast this session, but just look at that list, Brent, and let's just, let's see here. Simon, Peter, Simon, Peter, excuse me, Simon, let me just say it that way, and Andrew, James, John, and Philip. Who did we say they were? Some of you have suggested we don't know a whole lot about Bartholomew. Some have suggested maybe Bartholomew should be included in this list too. But what do we know about them, Brent? They're from the Galilee. They're from the Galilee, specifically the same town. Bethsaida. Yeah, yeah. the Bethsaida boys, right? So we have at least five. Five that we know. Simon, Peter. Uh, I keep saying Simon, Peter. <laughs> Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. Maybe Bartholomew, the way that they're listed here. We just don't know. But we know at least five of them are from Bethsaida, which means they're from which region and what worldview, Brent? Uh, So they're from the Galilee and they're on the Pharisaical worldview. Okay. They're from the Triangle and they're going to take more of a Pharisaical bent with uh, um, uh, uh, that that party of the Hasidim, if we remember talking about that in the early parts of this session. And let's see. see, We're going to keep reading here. Thomas, who another gospel calls him Didyma. So he's got a Greek name. And Matthew, that would be the guy writing the gospel here, the tax collector. So who are they? What worldview are they based on what we know? Herodian, probably. Probably Herodian. Can't say that for sure, but we know Matthew was a traitor to that religious Hasidim worldview by being a tax collector. Uh, James, son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Those are Greek names. So I, I feel like if there's any hints here, I feel like we've got Pharisees partnered up with a bunch of Herodians. How do you think that works out? <laughs> they, uh, I mean, the Pharisees intentionally try to get away from the Herodians. Absolutely. Uh, th- this would be like putting staunch Republicans in the same party with staunch Democrats. Like, you just see the world completely differently, have a different set of values. And then, let's see here. Um, and then you have Simon the Zealot and Judas, I- Judas Ishkariot, which we said was man from Kariot. Which Kariot, most scholars have a hunch, is a, a zealot compound. So you got two zealots to round off the list. So you at least have three of the five world uh, worldviews that we looked at. And we, we mentioned before, probably some Essene, well, we know we have Essene connections, and probably some priestly connections, because John is related to one of the high priests, uh, people in the high priest household, which is how they get in the courtyard at the end of the gospel. So we've got all five groups represented, but in, the, in this list, we clearly, I, I believe, clearly see, and I would just love to know, did Jesus, like, pair up, like, Hey, Peter, you go with Matthew. Like, did he, did he pair up on purpose? He sends them out two by two. Does he, does he pair them up or send them out? Let's see. Am I thinking the 72? Does it say send them out two by two? Uh, I don't 
No, there it, uh, it doesn't in this one. Uh, you just see, still making text, still making text mistakes. Still got to get better with my text. Well, but I'd I love mean, it to doesn't know. say that he sent them out individually. No, uh, well, I would. Ass- I would assume he doesn't send them out individually. He either sends them out all together as a group, or he sends them out in broken up groups. Whether it's pairs like the seventy-two, or what, however, he. I would love to know if he broke them up with people who didn't see the world the same way that they did. That would have been a fun little field trip. That would be very rabbinic of him to do it that way. But nevertheless, I digress. Neither here nor there, but I love to wonder. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Okay, so let's notice a couple things. He says, do not go to the outsiders. This is not a field, this is not an evangelism mission. They are not going to, I mean, it is evangelism, but not like we typically think of it. They're not going to the unbelievers. They're not going to the pagans. They're not going to the Samaritans. They're going to people who already share the worldview, at least the Jewish worldview, that they already share. Like go to the, to the, to the sheep of Israel. And when you go there, I want you to bring the kingdom. I want you to announce kingdom, and I want you to bring kingdom. I'm not just sending you out to bring a message. I'm also sending you out to be the message. So sometimes I think we hear this passage and we think, oh, they're going on a big mission trip to share the good news with people who don't know. These are already people who know and believe and follow God, and they're going to their own folks to spread kingdom, bring good news and be good news by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing those who have leprosy, and driving out demons. So that's the kind of field trip that Jesus has sent them on. Not to a crazy pagan across the sea to the Decapolis, to folks that they already share so much in common with. Okay? Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey, or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter... Search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Okay. So what are they what did what did the rabbi just have them do, Brent? What kind of what kind of position did they just put them in? He said, Don't take do not take any gold or silver, copper, no bag for the journey, or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. What did he just do as a rabbi? He's saying you you have to humble yourself to the people you're going to talk to. Okay, he's forcing them to have to rely on the people of God to take care of them. They're not going to be able to be like, oh, man, I don't like this group of people. Uh, I'm going to take some of the money, the extra money that I brought and go over here and hang out on my own. They are going to have to be dependent on the people that they're going to go stay with. And so when they go there, they're supposed to find somebody as you enter the home or whatever town. uh, What does it say here? Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. I can't remember if it's the same in Matthew as it is in Luke, but it's a person of peace. When you enter a town, look for a person of shalom and stay there until you have to leave. Okay, go ahead. Keep reading. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Okay, so Jesus sends them out to their own people, people they have common ground with, without anything. So they now have to rely uh, on the, what are they going to have to rely on, Brent? What's the word that we like to use? Hospitality. They're going to have to rely on the hospitality of the people of God, wherever they go. And so go to a town, 
Find somebody who's worthy and stay there. When you enter a home, tell them, peace be with you. Give them your greeting. And if they don't want to be hospitable, let your peace come back to you. We're hoping as we send you out amongst God's people that you're taken care of. But if they don't want to take care of you, rest assured that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day. Of, and why Sodom and Gomorrah, Brent? Well, their their sin was a lack of hospitality. They didn't show the hospital. They didn't show hospitality. So, 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 so God is saying, listen, Sodom and Gomorrah were pagan and they didn't show hospitality. What if God's people act like Sodom and Gomorrah? How much greater will that judgment be? Go ahead and keep reading. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Okay, now wait, 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 wait. Jesus just sent his his boys out, his disciples. I don't want to make them boys. Jesus just sent his disciples out on a mission to hang out with God's people. And Jesus is warning them with, with good news, with the kingdom. Come bring healing and shalom to everybody. And the word from Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as serpent as serpents and as innocent as doves. This is going to require unbelievable discernment and wisdom, Jesus tells us, guys. Because not every apparently, according to the last paragraph, not everybody's going to show you hospitality. Apparently, amongst God's people, you're not going to be treated kindly wherever you go. Um and, and, man, I just I don't know how many of our I mean, I know so many of our listeners have had. I know it because they send me all their emails. Like I know how many of us have struggled to figure out how to find our way in the church because it's not always this incredible place full of love and hospitality and grace. Like sometimes as you go to engage kingdom, you get flogged in the synagogues. Like what? And yet Jesus says, be aware, be on guard because this is what's going to happen. I'm sending you out not to the pagans. I just love that part about it. I'm not sending you to the pagans. I'm not sending you to the unbelievers. I'm sending you to the believers. Be prepared to be flogged. Is that like a normal synagogue activity? Uh, can be. Um, I, I wouldn't say like it happens all the time, but if you're going to remember what Jesus just said in the Sermon on the Mount, his gospel is so different and counterintuitive that he's having to actually tell people he hasn't come to abolish Torah. So if he sends out his disciples who aren't even as equipped as he is with this gospel message, there's a good chance there's a lot of people that are going to say, you are out of your mind. And if they push it, and if they say the wrong thing in the wrong way, I mean, the theology Gestapo are going to be there. The doctrine police are going to show up and you're going to get nailed, like you're going to get flogged. Um, and that would happen in these, in this world, in the world of the Galilee, in the world of the lost sheep, in the world of the sheep of Israel, that's going to happen in the synagogue because everything about their life centers around the synagogue. So if you want to talk incorrectly about Torah, be prepared to be flogged in the synagogues. So good question. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This this is uh, this sounds like fun. I just, I just love how honest Jesus is with his disciples. We got this wonderful message, bringing shalom to chaos, kingdom of God's here. 
and this is going to be so horrible that you're going to have to flee from one town to another. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be persecuted. Uh, just, oh man, I just love the honesty. And I just love how true it is to so many of our experiences, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So unfortunately. But it just is. Like, like go out on the mission of God. And apparently God sends, like, I've always felt like my call is, is to the lost sheep of God's people. Like, for me, it's not the lost sheep of Israel. It's just God's people in the church. Like, apparently God does that sometimes. God says, hey, go reach my people. And it's not going to go well. <laughs> it, this was soothing to my soul. I've been having a bad month this month. Uh, it's pretty rough. But th- this is how it works when you're on mission. When you're on mission, it's going to, even amongst just God's own people, it's going to be ugly. And I wonder, see, what was that last line you read there? Brent, can you read that last, uh, truly I tell you? Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. See, I, I, I wonder about that. Because what was the last reference to Son of Man just... Two podcasts ago, what was the, where did Son of Man come up? We actually had a podcast titled The Son of Man. Because, A, let's just stop for just a moment. Like, what does Jesus mean? Like, if Jesus is talking about himself, like, truly, you're not going to be done going throughout the towns of Galilee before the Son of Man comes, or the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. If he's talking about himself, he's already here. So that, does, that doesn't make any sense. Um, if he's talking about, like, like the second coming or the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. Well, that's not going to be correct either, obviously. So what does he mean by you will not finish this task before the son of man comes? Like what in the world is he? Now, where was the last place we talked about son of man? Brent, can you remember? What story? I'll give you a hint. How about this phrase? So you might know that the son of man has authority to do what? To forgive sins? To forgive sins. It was the story of the paralytic. Oh, yes. The paralytic was lowered through the roof. And Jesus has this weird, like, your sins are forgiven. Well, who can forgive sins? And as a capstone to what I believe would have been Jesus' teaching that day in the house, he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I wonder, I have wondered, if the thing that Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I'll tell you the one thing you're going to have to get really good at on this field trip is forgiveness. Like, I wonder if having just come off the heels of trying to teach people that the son of man is about forgiveness, not about judgment. I wonder if he's telling his disciples, like, you're going to experience this. Like you're going to see the son of man come because you're going to have to get used to forgiving. Like this, this mission trip is going to require a lot of forgiveness because your own people are going to just stab you in the back and hurt you and come after you. And and you'll see the son of man come. I, I wondered, I wondered, I don't know. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Go ahead and keep reading. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So that just happened. The paragraph preceding the last little section there of Matthew 9. It's by the prince of demons. That's Beelzebul. It's by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So Jesus said, listen, if you just saw that happen to me... (laughs) Don't think for a moment that you're going to go pull this off everywhere that you go. This is going to be just as hard for you. Go ahead. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, let's stop there. Don't want to go run past that. And... uh I'm not going to try to do some gymnastics to explain away the hell thing here. 
Like, I'm not going to try to be like, well, this hell is present tense when it's clearly not present tense. He's talking about something other, like his point being, do not fear those that can only hurt the body. Fear God who can hurt the body and the soul in hell. So there's a reference there to this Gehenna in in the abstract. So I'm not going to try to do some dance around that and act like that doesn't exist. What I will also point out at the same time is that at this point, we've been walking through every single verse of Matthew, uh, Brent, right? Every verse we said. We, we have not bumped into a complete systematic theology of hell yet. Like, we haven't mapped that out. Some of the hell references we've run into, we've talked about clearly a present tense reality. Clearly a, clearly a present tense metaphor. Some of the references to hell uh, have not been that. But we have not run into a doctrine on hell at this point. I'm not saying we won't. We might bump into that in the in the New Testament. We might bump into it by the time the gospel's over. We might bump into it in other gospels. We might bump into it in the book of Acts or in Paul's letters or the book of Revelation. Like, we may bump into it. I just want to make an observation to this point. When Jesus says hell, we have yet to have some massive doctrine on eternal destinations. And Jesus's point, if we just listen to the point, he's been going paragraph after paragraph this is going to be difficult. You're going to be flogged in synagogues. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to come after you. This is going to be incredibly difficult. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of human beings. They might flog you in the synagogue. They might hurt your body. They might destroy your body. Do not let that be your concern. The concern that you ought to have is what God is up to in the world. Because God is going to have, and that's where this reference shows up, not in a doctrine on annihilationism or eternal damnation or torment or anything like that. B, Jesus's point, this, this hyperbole that he's employing to talk about who you ought to revere and who you ought to have the appropriate kind of fear of is not man and what man is going to do to you, but what's going on big picture with what God is doing in the collision of these two kingdoms, empire and shalom. Be concerned about that. So just a a word about that, because I think whenever we hear that word, we're reading along, we're reading along, we hear something about hell, and I feel like we black out theologically, like we just have this theological blackout moment and forget everything about everything, and immediately start obsessing over the reference of hell, and we need to put it back in its context and realize what Jesus is doing. He's employing a hyperbole to talk about where our reverence and our concern ought to lie. He has not, up to this point, provided us with some massive theology on hell. We may, we may get there later, but we're gonna let we're gonna let ourselves get there later if we do. So, just a thought. Whenever we, I just feel like whenever we hear the word hell, we freak out. So, let's just put it in its proper place. Keep moving. All right, no freaking out today. No freaking out today. Not on this episode. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Aha! What? See, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> See, everybody loves to say, See, Marty, this is not your loving Jesus. We love to quote this verse out of, especially when, we, when it's convenient for us. And we're like, well, you know, the gospel is offensive. Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. And so we just like ignore everything about Jesus' ministry and quote like only a few verses. There was a book that we won't be linking in the show notes uh, by Reza Aslan. 
um, called Zealot. And uh, actually conservative, um, or I shouldn't say conservative, just evangelical Christian thought made a huge deal out of it and totally overreacted. And we all needed to calm down and just read the book uh, from a scholastic perspective. Um, And once we were able to do that and not read it all freaked out, just read the book academically, it was actually a terrible book. (laughs) But he built his whole case of this book really on just a handful of statements that Jesus made. And he said, see... Jesus really was a zealot. That's what he was. And you have to rewrite the whole rest of the Gospels and everything that we've been studying to do that. But nor do we get to just ignore this verse. This is tricky. Like, what is Jesus talking about here? Like, I'm not. And when he says that, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, in context, it makes sense because what has he been talking about this whole time, Brent? What has this conversation been? What has he been? What's the point he's been making now for like four paragraphs? Uh, He's talking about the conflict with the sheep of Israel. Yeah. This is going to this message this message is not going to be received by everyone. This message is going to be uh this this message is going to be a powder keg. It's going to be electric. It's going to be not received by everybody. So in that regard his statement fits. I haven't come to make everybody happy. I've come to bring a sword. But it, but there's more. There's more going on cuz he's about ready to quote what Brent uh, Micah? Yeah, he's about ready to quote the text. So here we go. Go ahead. Let's see. Verse 35 here. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, when you read that, you're like, oh my goodness, Jesus has lost his mind. He's come to bring division and a sword. He's come to turn family members against each other. And yet that quote you said is coming out of Micah. So what do you suppose we ought to do, Brent? We should go check out Micah. And like when we say check out Micah, like what do you mean? Like read it. And like read how much of it? Um, probably more than what he's quoting. Okay, because he's probably quoting Micah in order to allude to the larger conversation on Micah. And we could like really spend some time, but uh, you know, we're half an hour into our podcast and we probably don't want to read the entire book of Micah. We will link... Uh, our Micah episode in the show notes, which we're really proud of. Uh, no. That was the one episode where our mics quit working. So, Well, we had two episodes, but we figured it out halfway through the one yeah. after this. Oh, boy. Anyway. It's depressing. So we'll, it sounds we'll, terrible. We'll but, link you know. that terrible sounding conversation uh, so that you could go back. You could go back and review the whole book, and it would be awesome. And you should. But for the sake of time and brevity here... This this quotation comes from the end of Micah, just the last few chapters. And those last few chapters of Micah, Micah is having this lo- this larger conversation. So how about we jump back and read a few verses in Micah 6, because the quote that Jesus has comes from Micah 7. So let's jump back a little bit and remind ourselves of what showed up before Micah 7 and go from there. Go ahead and what do you got there? What passage? Uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Okay. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? I feel like I'm hearing like, uh, it wasn't too long ago when Jesus quoted Hosea. Do you remember that quotation? I think uh, one, two podcasts ago, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Feels very similar to that. Okay, go ahead. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. All right. So this whole thing about, man, what does God really require? What should I come to him with? Is it sacrifice? No, that's not what God truly wants. What God truly wants is compassion, justice, mercy, humility. God wants people to care about other people. That's what God wants. 
And yet, Micah's going to go on to say, that's not the world we're living in. You can read it. You can read through the end of Micah 6. You can pick up in the beginning of Micah 7. But we're going to pick up. Where are we going to pick up? 7 verse 4. All right. This is the world that Micah is speaking to. They're not walking at loving. What am I trying to say here? They're not acting justly. They are not loving mercy. They are not walking humbly. What, what does their world look like? Go ahead, Brent. So this is immediately preceding uh, the quote that Jesus pulled. Uh, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So that's the quotation that Jesus quotes, that last couple verses there. He says, I have come to bring a bring a sword. This is the sword I've come to bring. What were the two verses that preceded that, Brent? What were, can you read that? Go ahead and start at the beginning again. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Okay, so we're not acting justly. We're not loving mercy, and we're not walking humbly. We're in a totally different place. Go ahead. The day God visits you has come. Okay, wait. Jesus said, I have come to bring a sword. I would read that out of Jesus' rabbinical lips as that day is upon us. Like that same kind of world that Micah lived in is upon us, and I have showed up. God has shown up. I've brought a sword because this is the world, and he references Micah. But what is the verse that comes right after Jesus' quotation? Brent? But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. You see, I. why is he quoting that to his disciples? Because he's telling his disciples they are going to have to persevere in the midst of this. And if they will persevere, God will see them and save them. Context matters. If we blindly quote these verses, we can often do the exact opposite thing of what Jesus is doing in context. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, I have come to bring this day. This day is upon us. The same kind of days that Micah was dealing with are the same days that we're dealing with today, briars and thorn hedges. Because we don't know how to we don't know how to show hospitality. We're not acting justly. We don't love mercy. We're not acting humbly. And so I have come to bring this day. But if you will persevere, boys and girls, Talmudim, you will find the rescue of God. Just love that. All right. We've got a couple more paragraphs here. Let's, let's finish it out. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, let's just stop right there. Seems like a pretty... Uh, whoa. Losing his mind again, becoming a jerk. Why is Jesus such a jerk in Matthew 10? Uh, one of the things that helps is to know that common Talmudical quotation in the Talmud and the Mishnah, which means it was around when Jesus was there. Jesus wasn't the first one to come up with it. I mean, the Talmud is later, about 100 years after the Gospels are written. But one of the things we know about Jewish teaching is we, we find common references the Talmud says, the only relationship stronger than that between a father and a son is the relationship bond between a rabbi and his disciple. Time and time again, the Talmud says, in fact, legally, according to Jewish law, the rabbi has more legal status in relationship than the parents do once he is under the wing of the rabbi. Like, 
This is this is not a crazy statement coming out of left field by Jesus. This is the way that the rabbinical system, Jesus is speaking out of a rabbinical system into a rabbinical system where this was the standard default assumption of how relationships worked. Jesus isn't saying making some condemnation of relationships with mothers and fathers and all that. Jesus is saying you can't be half in in this discipleship thing. You have to be all the way in. You have to be, you can't, if you're going to go about and be persecuted and flogged in the synagogues and go through all of this, if you're going to have to persevere, you will not be a half in, half out kind of disciple. You are going to have to be totally 100%. And I wonder what, I wonder what moms felt like when Jesus sent their sons out. And we've talked about before, like 13 year old sons, 16 year old sons, and Jesus sent them out to be flogged in synagogues. I wonder how mom felt about that. Like, probably not well. I, I know how parents feel about half the things that I do in my campus ministry. <laughs> like, I'm sure that parents weren't like, oh, yeah, go for it. And yet Jesus, I mean, one of the things I love about campus ministry is my students as college students are just old enough that when God calls them to do things, they can just do it. And I just love that. And I think that's more of the worldview that Jesus is talking about here. Not a hate your mom, hate your dad, all that kind of stuff love your rabbi, love your spiritual leader, but the mission of God is going to require, it's going to call call to a decision where you're firmly planted. And you're going to have to be all in if you're going to be about this mission thing, this, this kingdom of God thing. So anyway, go ahead. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. And we close the chapter with words that sound incredibly like the words he used in the Sermon on the Mount about rewards, fasting and praying and not losing your rewards. And again, I make the same point we made back there. Sure sounds like the rewards he's speaking of are technically in the Greek, a present tense, are uh, untechnically just listening to the teaching, a present tense reward. Um, and Jesus is saying, listen, the way that you live is going to produce particular kind of reward. If you want to be a person of hospitality, if you want to be a person of mercy and of justice and of humility, you're going to reap the rewards that come with that. If you want to be a person that is stingy, that has ayin ra'a rather than ayin tova, if you want to be a person that has a bad eye, you will reap those rewards. And so be aware of the way that you go about doing this mission. Be aware of the way that you receive people that are on mission. Be aware of how, because how you do that will be the reward that you receive. Matthew chapter 10. Boom. Whole the chapter. Second discourse. Second discourse. Second book is closed. Moving on to book number three. All right. Sounds good. Um, if you got any questions about the show, you can find everything you need at baymodiscipleship.com. Uh, you can find the Micah podcast and all the other previous podcasts. If for some reason you're stumbling onto this and this is your first episode, it's fantastic. Ooh. Definitely should go back to the beginning, though. Uh, yeah, definitely go back to the beginning. This is a kind of a crazy place to jump in. Um <laughs> <laughs> we do have lots of discussion groups. If you uh, if you're just going through this material uh, and you are not in a group uh, wrestling with this material, we'd highly encourage you to do that. We're adding new groups all the time. We just added two more groups to the map today. Yep. 
so that's always changing. Check that out. Find somebody in your area. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Baywatch Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.